I love Burn the Haystack because I'm a deep thinker and I like to challenge old traditions to make way for a brighter future. That's also why I chose to get my degree from Avondale University College. With a thriving community of believers, I was able to kickstart my career and grow my faith at the same time. Business, arts, teaching, nursing or ministry. Called to make a difference? Called to be at Avondale. Welcome back to Burn the Haystack with Josh and Jesse. I'm Jesse. And I'm Josh. And this is a show all about saving the best and burning the rest. Absolutely. And we got a zinger for you today. Now I'm thinking of KFC. What have I done to myself? <laughs> we have Andre on the podcast. Andre Afmasanga. Welcome, Andre. Um, Salafa, Kia ora, Koto, and good morning or hi, guys. Uh, really, really, really cool to be here, Jesse and Josh. Man, Beautiful. it is so good to have you. I've been trying to tee up with Andre to do an episode pretty much since we started the podcast. <laughs> so, But, you know, it's been one of those things. It's been slowly brewing and that means it's going to be absolute perfection because it's delivered right at the right time, which is right now. So I'm so happy to finally have you. Um, Andre has been a really good friend and a mentor to me for, I don't man, I would probably say about a decade now, which is yeah. pretty crazy to think yeah, about. Yeah. That's right. That's We're, true. You guys yeah. knew each other back in Australia. Is that correct? Yep. We were in the same, we went to primary school together, we were in the same year. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. I, man, oh, honestly, this makes me feel old, but um, Josh was one of those awesome young people when I was a pastor and I went to speak at this school where his mum was a pastor, uh, chaplain at that school, and Josh was in high school. And so he's just one of the many awesome young people that, you know, I've seen grow into pastors and just killing it and just be amazing. So, yeah. Oh, thanks. <laughs> honest, I remember honestly, there was because um, I think we met we met originally at a Hillsong conference in Sydney. I don't know that church. What's that? <laughs> 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 no, no, we absolutely, it was a well, I'm joking. It was yeah. a Hillsong conference in Sydney. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, I remember at the time I was contemplating if I wanted to be a pastor, but a mm. lot of the, and I don't want anyone to take this the wrong way, but a lot of the Adventist pastors I'd met at the time, I just couldn't see myself like that they just felt very like very different to me like too far mm. too far different from me that I could ever be like that but when wow. I met Andre I was like man he is so cool if that's what an Adventist <laughs> pastor can look like then I want to be an Adventist pastor and so that was like Andre was a really key player in my decision <sighs> to follow what I followed so I don't know if I've ever told you that before Andre but uh, now you know and now everybody uh, knows so I you're know. the man and now everyone's really worried about you now. <laughs> no, just, but no, thanks, Josh. That, that means so much to me. I really respect both of you guys' ministry. Uh, you know, just watching you guys just kill it here in New Zealand. I feel so blessed that, um, you know, New Zealand has got these two amazing young Australian cool dudes that are just doing really great stuff here. I was just saying to Jesse, we listened to his sermon on Sabbath in our church and it was awesome. Gave me some new things to think about. And, uh, yeah, so, so blessed to be here, guys. Thank you for the invitation. Well, this is just a beautiful, warm moment. I love it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> hey, um, so Andre, for the few people who don't know you, uh, would you be able to just give your little bio, 
um, where did you grow up? Um, what are the sort of things that influenced you? Um, and uh, what have you what have you done in life? What are what are some mm-hmm. of the things that have been exciting for you in life? Mm, wow, cool. So um, I'm a um, Samoan, so born and raised in New Zealand. Um, so third generation Seventh-day Adventist, uh, Christian, grew up in a very conservative, traditional Samoan uh, Christian home, uh, which I loved, um, you know, two parents, three siblings. And, um, you yeah, know, I think culture and church were really big, massive parts of my life and family as well. And, um, yeah, did have been fortunate to do a number of things, uh, work in community, um, you know, even worked at a magazine as well. Uh, in fashion, um, worked in the corporate world, and then I gave my life to Jesus, actually, when I was working at a magazine, which is uh, certainly not the sort of place where you'd give your life to Jesus, you know, but I really mm-hmm. had a bottom. I was a problem drinker at the time, and I really needed Jesus in my life. Um, and then at that time, I thought um, that if you became a Christian, the only way you could really serve God or help God was to become a pastor. So that was sort of my heart's desire thereafter. And then I became a youth worker, did a lot of community work, um, and then eventually found myself um, in Australia where I was doing some volunteer work. And then um, uh, the conference over there in Sydney reached out to me and uh, asked me to be a pastor and um, train me on the job. And that was like about... Um, Oh gosh, that's a long time ago now. I can't remember. Yeah, um, maybe fourteen years ago, fifteen years mm. ago, and then uh, then I became a pastor in Southwest Sydney. Uh, really, really enjoyed it. Uh, but the whole time that that was going on for me, I was kind of like um, I I was gay, but I wasn't allowing myself to accept that part of me. Was um, mm. I was a Christian, and then because I was a pastor as well, mm. uh, that's kind of a part of my life that I just sort of turned off or was actively trying to change. Um, yeah. And then I got to an age, age 40, and I was like, I remember being uh, in my place where the birthday was, lots of people around, lots of friends, lots of food. Some people even did a haka for me, which yeah. was a really, really nice night. And, um, and instead I looked around the room and I just, I just felt really lonely. And I just thought because of what I believe, of my desire to want to please God and to want to become straight, which I've actively tried to do for a long time, that I was going to be single for the rest of my life. And it was kind of like mm-hmm. a defining moment, really, that I needed to think about what I was going to do. Um, and by this time, I started to feel quite sometimes um, suicidal, very empty or very down, uh, despite knowing God and despite loving God and despite being a pastor as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. That must have been a huge wrestle to go through. I mean, I can't. Obviously, like I can't understand at all, but you know, just from what I can gather, um, sounds really challenging. I don't know if other people feel this, but when you feel like you are making some sacrifices for God or putting Him first, that often does feel really wonderful, you know, because mm-hmm. I think we grow up and at least me, my personality is that um, you can become quite selfish and, you know, you do things your way for so long and then you always sort of fall on your face and so then you learn to do things God's way. Uh, But I think in trying to do things God's way, I thought that, you know, things like being a pastor, going to church every week, you know, tithing, etc., was the same as trying to change my sexuality and I think Mm -hmm. what I've realised now is they're actually different you know like it's not yeah. really 
it's not a behaviour you can change. I know there's debate about that uh, from people that 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 don't have this experience of being a rainbow person, uh, but but as someone that actively tried to change it, I can tell you that I that I couldn't despite great effort. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Um, I'm really curious. So you mentioned you grew up um, Samoan household. Uh, amongst a very orthodox, um, traditional faith community. What were some of the, the stories and the um, narratives that you were told about sexuality um, growing up that influenced your journey? Oh, that, that is a very funny question, Josh. Probably none. I mean, not Jesse, probably none. Um, ah. I mean- asked this question uh, when I was on a TV show in Australia and um, and the host asked me if um, if I heard lots of sort of anti-gay messaging in church and actually I didn't at all. I think um, Samoans are, and also I think Seventh-day Adventists and also a lot of Christian faiths actually don't talk about sex which is kind of weird given the fact that everyone's doing it or thinking of doing it or has done it, you know, (laughs) and yet like it's a no-go there conversation. I think I picked up, um, you know, the stigma that it wasn't cool to be gay and you should be ashamed of being gay more from society and probably more from my culture uh, than I ever did the church because I think the church just wasn't willing to talk about it at that time. You know, this Mm -hmm. was before things like, at least in my corner of the world, that we weren't talking about things like gay rights. You know, there weren't, you know, the conversations that have happened over the last two years over here around, you know, Israel Falah and freedom of speech and all that, those conversations weren't being had when I was growing up. And I think, um, you know, there's a bit of decorum, um, you know, from religion, but then also the culture at the time that just would not permit those conversations. Yeah, so I think all my cues about what it meant to be gay and that being bad has probably came from outside of the church more than anything, you know. And if people had those thoughts in the church, that was really just a um, symptomatic of things that they'd picked up from outside of the church. Huh. That's, That's really interesting. Mm. Yeah. I, well, and I think, I don't know, like, I don't know if that's everybody's experience, you know, like, yeah. but I think... I think there's a lot of just assumptions in in the church with with these things. It's just assumed that oh you know you know you know if you know sort of thing mm-hmm. how you should think about it. Yeah, um, yeah. And a lot of those yeah. are just picked up from other places. And yeah, yeah. yeah, you know you're probably right actually. Now you know when I think about it, even just you know as a pastor, if I yeah. think back across our sermonic year, like, like yeah. the things I've preached about over the past years, yeah. sexuality doesn't come up. Oh, yeah. Very often. And I mean, it's also kind of awkward because we've got kids oh. in church and that kind of That's right. <laughs> you know, Absolutely. but like our system kind of makes it a little bit challenging. There are ways around that, but you know, yeah, right. just when yeah. I think about it, it hasn't come up. And yeah. yeah, so that's probably something I need to really think about now that I'm, that's now right. that I'm thinking about it. Yeah. This, this is going to sound like a really controversial thing to say, but I absolutely believe there's a case for a... Um, for uh, the church to have a sexual revolution somewhat, you know. Oh, okay. And, and simply what I mean by that is is that um, most people in the church, if you're an adult and you're married, even if you're not married, are participating in sex, and yet we don't talk about these things. So mm. It's always intriguing to me, um, you know, we tend to, the church has focused on homosexuality in a very negative sense, very critical sense, and yet we don't apply that same sort of criticism to the fact, for instance, that people inside the church are divorcing, separating at the same rate as those people outside of the church, engaging in adultery, consuming pornography at the same rates, having, you know, the same rates of 
um, you know, sort of incest or family abuse and violence, etc. And so when I'm saying that it absolutely needs a sexual revolution, I'm not saying that we um, then throw away everything we ever believed about sexuality, but I think we actually need to have an honest conversation because those honest conversations is what leads to um, a lot of yucky stuff, actually. It leads to a lot of abuse happening. It leads to a lot of shame happening. And I think in the same way that the church has had to embrace and uh, learn to deal with family violence, I think we absolutely need to do the same around sex as well. And I do believe that the church does not have a credible witness in this regard because mm. scandals that happen, and they happen because they happen in secret. I often say this thing, and it's, people might get annoyed at me for saying it, but I say that the church judges the world uh, publicly for things that it is doing privately. Wow. Wow. So it's like judging every person out there, calling them out for all their stuff, and then only to find out that they're doing all those things secretly. And so yeah. I would think that the church would actually be a very credible witness if we were actually honest with our struggles. Mm. Doing so, we're not condoning it, but we're actually saying that actually we've got these tools that come from having faith in Jesus and the Bible that have helped us to deal with the same issues that you are grappling with. And in fact, one of the best things we can actually offer is grace and the removal of shame, the removal of stigma, you know, the opportunity for a new chance um, and to go forward. And that, in fact, your mistakes or the things that have happened to you sexually uh, or your shame, that actually don't wear that. You know, Jesus takes that from you. So I, I, that's why I believe that a sexual revolution is overdue. People are going to get lost in the terminology and they said a sexual revolution in the church. But yeah, the, yeah. because unfortunately we have sexualized this conversation so much that we don't sure. actually think about, you know, the, the other contours of what's happening around this conversation. Mm, yeah, because I think, mm. I mean, you're, you're so right in saying that we've sexualized this conversation. I mean, sexuality itself is, is the term that we use to determine whether somebody likes boys, girls or non-binary um, people or whatever. And, you know, from what I'm hearing from you, um, it's not about it's not about well I had this urge to 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 have sex have sex with with boys and men from a very early age it was actually about companionship it was about not being alone when you saw all oh, your friends sure. around you with with wives and husbands and families and partners and stuff it was like why can't I have that you know absolutely can I just say I've just heard this incredible um, statement by Tony Kimpolo who is an amazing Baptist preacher who's very, very sick at the moment, but he was certainly a man that a lot of Adventists really loved in the 80s and 90s. And he was formative in terms of me wanting to be a volunteer, to leave behind, you know, a really good career post-grad study at uni um, years ago in 2004 and, and go be a volunteer in Australia because I remember his call was like, Jesus is not looking for followers, he's looking for disciples. So he's really just built his whole ministry around this idea that it's not about what you say. He goes, even the devil believes in Jesus, it's actually how this is demonstrated and how you live towards others. Anyway, he had this fascinating um, um, thing that he had to say about the gay marriage debate. And he said, he goes, listen, I'm a very rough man. And uh, I say what I want to say. A lot of people like me or not. He goes, my wife, over the course of our uh, their decades long marriage has really helped to iron, iron out those rough edges. Um, and, and then he says this, and it's so powerful. He goes, actually, marriage itself is the highest form of discipleship. Mm. Uh, if you consider for a moment, because in, within churches, like we can go to a course, we can do discipleship, we can put our best face on when we go to church on the weekend. 
Uh, but then we go back to our family who truly know us, you know? So at, at home, we cannot get away with what we can get away with publicly. You know, our spouse yeah. and our children know us better than anyone. So, you know, this is all to say this is that the, and he talks about that marriage, that iron sharpens iron marriage as a form of a highest quality of discipleship because you have to be absolutely honest and you have to have integrity and you can't get away with stuff. And then he finishes this and he goes, if this is God's highest form of discipleship by which we will grow and grow into his likeness to become the best versions of Jesus in us, why would we deprive that for people who are saying, you know, who, who are gay, who are rainbow as well? Right. They yeah. surely need that highest form of discipleship in their lives as well. And so just to go back to your point, Jesse, I think when we're thinking about this debate, it becomes so sexualized and yet mm. more than these things. I mean, you guys don't go around as straight guys just like having sex all day. No, you don't. Yeah. We are more than these things. <laughs> you are not defined by the fact that you, you know, have a wife and you have sex. Like those are parts of who you are. But there's certainly, you don't get your job that way, you know. When, mm. You know, when you're preaching at the pulpit on the weekends, we don't, we don't want to hear that, frankly. You know what I mean? <laughs> in your, we don't. You know, that is yeah. not the sum total of who you are. And this conversation is, in my opinion, just very immature. It has not evolved. And it, it just has stuck around the gutter, if you ask me. And I just mm. feel like um, these types of conversations are really, really important uh, to have. Yeah. yeah. I think that's really interesting because I think, I think traditionally, because of the, it's probably because of the Catholic model, you know, of priests staying celibate. I think people often think the highest form of discipleship is to stay celibate. It's like you're married to Jesus and that's it. And so I think people almost think of, sometimes think of marriage and sexuality as like a a compromise in a way. Maybe this is just something, I'm just thinking about this now. I haven't thought about this before because I've, yeah. yeah. But to think of marriage as the ultimate act of, discipleship and that real accountability like i know that's been true in my life once i got married there was so many things where i could come home and i was like oh actually um you know like if i do anything like you know my wife will keep me accountable still and that's actually all it's hard but it's also really awesome to have that that's right and and that's why we know that you know, as pastors and as preachers, that sometimes you have to avoid those faces in the audience because as you're <laughs> preaching to the church, you have your family members and the people that know you the best, they're like, yeah. um, mm, I just yep. remind you what happened this week. And you're yeah. like, yeah. Yeah. And that, that's important. Like that is the type of discipleship. That's a quality of discipleship that I think yeah. God wants us to have. It's not, you know, the sort of religion that happens for, you know, for the masses, it's actually the religion that happens at home that's integrated. It's not just what you say, it's actually what you do to the people that um, that you are most comfortable with and sometimes get the worst of you. Mm. Hmm. Hmm. That's good, that's good. Um, yeah. I, I know, I know. I mean, we talked about this in the, at, before we hit the record button, you don't wanna make this conversation specifically just about you and your journey and you know, all the, you know, the details and all that sort of stuff. But I do have to ask, at what point in your life, did you recognize that you had an attraction that was different to the people around you? And growing up into that, what was what was that experience like for you? And I ask that not you know just for you know okay we want to know, but I want to kind of shed that light on on the experience of a, a rainbow person, and it's an experience that most straight people just don't I think understand. 
Yeah. I think, um, gosh, I have to say, like, uh, I know people get really triggered by these terms in terms of, like, sexual fluidity and diverse gender expression and uh, orientation, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but um, if we were to have an honest conversation in the church, I think everyone can look back upon their adolescence when they were children and growing up, and everyone wondered, what am I? Who am I attracted to? <laughs> you know? We know for sure that, you know, research confirms this, that, you know, in people's teenage years, around 15, 14 or whatever, that they are so, so sort of undecided in terms of where they're going to arrive at their own identity, including what they're going to call themselves sexually. So I'll just say this, like growing up, I certainly felt attracted towards boys, other boys, but I also felt attracted towards girls as well. So some fundamentalist Christians and normal Christians will hear that and then go, see, we've got an opportunity to influence. But no, I would just push back and actually say, and by the way, that's why they go really hard in terms of trying to get people when they're 13 to 14 to actually make this the right choice in terms of mm -hmm. heterosexuality. But I would just say this is that we have all these fleeting thoughts um, and someone's hard out campaigning to try to make you straight or heterosexuality is going to make a little difference. I think we do need to admit that we always question about who we are. Some people don't, and there's mm. a lot to do question where we're at in terms of this continuum, right? Um, and so, yeah, I so I, I felt both, but overall in the end, what won out and I felt most strongest towards was being attracted to guys. Mm. No. Mm. Yeah. Cool, cool. Yeah, interesting. Um, can can you share a little bit about um, if yeah just what your experience when you did eventually come out was like because um yeah. you know you're probably actually you've you're probably our, our the our guest who's done the most media uh what what am I looking for like who's had the most media attention I don't know probably, yeah. like yeah like the the amount of radio and like articles and stuff you've written it's been pretty incredible to see like the the influence yeah, yeah. Um, well look i came out twice so the first time i came out was when i was around 18 just to my family and all that sort of stuff so okay um so school finished and then i came out to my siblings and then my close friends um uh, then i gave my life to jesus at age 25 and um and like i said before i was a problem drinker and i think when i gave my life to jesus at age 25 i was like Everything has been so bad to this point that Jesus is going to get everything. Um, and then if you're gay, essentially what happens is, is that Jesus is going to get everything, including my sexuality. Right. By the way, when heterosexual people like have really crazy protocol lives, they absolutely change everything for Jesus, right? But no one's oh, yeah. to change the sexuality. Do you know? Yeah. So you just think about this for a moment. So I think these issues absolutely become conflated. Mm. I think for us, I think, you know, it's this whole, I don't know if you've ever done this before and you're probably too young to actually have CDs, but, you know, if you've heard of oh, no. records. Yeah. <laughs> okay. uh, I did but, have a Linkin Park CD. <laughs> okay, cool, yeah. Okay. Yep. So, you know, it's this whole notion that when you give your life to Jesus is that you throw away all your yep. CDs, right? Yep. And then inevitably what happens for a lot of people is like 15 years later, they've got a really strong relationship with Jesus. And like, I wish I never threw that CD around. And then they themselves <laughs> in a secondhand store and they bought it again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. In sure. other words, like we've been able to separate like Jesus in my life and, you know, and then the details of all the things that sort of were the, anyway. So I'm not trying to compare sexuality to a CD, but I'm just trying to say like the quandary of the, 
gay person or the rainbow person is that when they come face to face with Jesus and know that they need him in their life, the immediate thing is to do is throw away sexuality as well. And yet we don't require that of heterosexual people at all. So mm-hmm. that's yeah. the second thought though is, is that um, the next time I came out was after I stopped uh, resigning being a pastor, by this time I was age 41. And um, so I'd stop being a pastor and then my plan was to come out publicly. But then I would get um, requests to go speak, um, you know, in different places. And then I would like, okay, because I do feel like God has given me a gift in terms of communicating and, you know, communicating the gospel specifically, like an inclusive gospel. And so then I would do a talk and then I go, okay, last talk, I'm going to give it a month's margin and then I'm going to come out. Uh, and so it's, and this is crazy. So by this time, it was now September because I just kept getting all of these requests. And I think at one time I was in Australia 10 times a year. Anyway, and then I said, oh, mate, hey, joke's on you, Andre, because like, because you don't get paid to do this now, you know, <laughs> but you're still living essentially in the closet, you know. Anyway, mm. cut a long story short, I started to come out to myself. And then at the end of last year, which is 2019, um, I had seen this whole debacle here in our side of the world about the Israel Falal situation. For those that don't understand, Israel Falal is a, a really famous Christian, a really good, 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 good man, uh, good Christian man who uh, really felt the need to speak up against homosexuality on his Instagram uh, post. Um, and he did this, and as a result, this whole debacle and debate uh, ensued after that. Well, every time I'd gone to Facebook, I would get so annoyed that people that I knew really well uh, were having this really divisive, yucky sort of um, discussions where they were vilifying gay people. And that was on the back of the plebiscite debate in Australia as well in terms of gay marriage. Right. Blah, blah, blah. I got really frustrated and, um, and I was starting to really think about young gay people, Pacific gay people, rainbow people who were, well, I was just thinking, man, whether Israel knew it or not, him and this whole debate has forced another whole generation into the closet again of people that will just ever be too scared to accept themselves or even to admit that they are gay. So on the back of that, I wrote uh, an article in, in a place called the City Morning Herald, a big newspaper in Australia, um, and then basically that went viral. And so to get to your question, um, Josh, it's been amazing. I expected a lot of pushback and I expected a lot of negativity, particularly from the church. And I think a lot of people probably were ambivalent about it or probably felt bad about it, but they by and large kept their opinions to themselves. Mm. What I wasn't expecting was an outpour of support for it. You know, I remember one pastor, uh, David Egrin, he reached out and he said, Andre, you preached more in that, you know, eight minute column, seven minute column or five minute column that, you know, read to, to more people than you did in all your years of preaching, you know. Mm. So wow. within the church, I was getting that type of uh, feedback. But then I think more importantly for me, I was getting feedback from people who, for instance, a university chaplain at a secular university in Sydney who was saying that, gosh, we really needed this article in the um, ether like two months ago. We've had two Pacific boys have a suicide to this issue. Yeah. And at least if your article or that perspective was out there, it might make them think that they're not alone. Mm. So by and large, I got more of that type of stuff. The stories that I started to hear were just incredible to me. You know, I remember um, uh, some people in Brazil um, who I don't even know, and they were like, my gosh, this story sounds like he has grown up in Brazil, you know? And I think it was because yeah. the colonial history and past, you know, and the role of Christianity 
to define what sexuality is and also to exclude homosexual people and gay people. And so, like, I, I didn't realise that it was going to resonate that broadly. Hmm. Uh, and that, for me, I think that was very helpful because I, I felt I was, I've been so used to living in shame, ashamed of who I am, worried about how people are going to think of me, which kept me in the closet for so long that when I was getting those other types of responses, it, it reminded me that God was with me, basically. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Um, maybe a slightly obvious question, but I feel like I should ask it. Why did it take you so long to come out to the world? Yeah, I think it took me so long. I think um, if I can just turn it back on you guys as pastors, it's the same reason that keeps pastors pastoring beyond their expiry date. I'm not saying yeah. this. <laughs> but, you know, and, and not just pastors, but people in ministry who have certainly had a really good run and it's worked for them so well, worked for many others. Many people have come to know Jesus through them. Lives have been changed. Uh, but then you get to a point in life and it's um, either no longer enough or it's actually time to change, you know, to change into, you know, experience and God in a different way. So for me, I absolutely felt a burden of responsibility to all the people that were in my church, all the people that I'd preached to over the years. And I was really worried because um, contrary to what a lot of Christians who criticize people like me think, is that, um, you know, they would, they would say the first thing is, oh, so you've now fallen into your own desire to do your own will. Mm. Well, yeah, if you say it that way, I did. But the reason why I was in the closet for so long is because I was so... I was wanting to be so faithful to what I thought God's will was for me. And I didn't want to discourage people. I didn't want people to think, I didn't want people to throw away their Christianity and question what they knew about God. I didn't want people who had come to know Jesus, you know, as a result of, you know, some little part that I had to do with it. I didn't want them to question all that sort of stuff, which now just seems so absurd and arrogant to say that because like God is so much bigger than been one person, right? Like, mm. but those are the feelings of responsibility that you feel. And then also on top of that, um, the shame and the stigma as well. Like, like there's so much shame in it. You're worried about how people are going to treat you. You do feel like a second class citizen. And so it does feel safer to be in the closet than it does to feel out of it because of, uh, you know, because of what people say, you know? Um, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I uh, I must ask as well. I mean, you, you were a pastor for so many years, yeah. um, and you've dealt with many different conferences and conference presidents and officials and you know bureaucrats and other colleagues and 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 all that sort of stuff. In your in your professional capacity, uh, how have you felt the church the church overall, the Seventh Day Adventist Church right now? is with um, the sexuality conversation. I mean, you've already alluded to the fact that growing up, it was not It was a non-conversation because there was sort of like this a priori assumption that we just don't talk about this because, you know, if you're normal, you're straight. If, you, if you're gay, then, you know, we're not going to talk about it. But yeah, yeah, yeah. what about the church of today? What's, what's your experience been with how yeah. they've responded? Yeah. Can I just say that... Uh, experience that I have was reflective of the time that I grew up in and the reflective of the fact that I went to a Samoan church where sexuality, so there's two levels of taboo there. There's the religion and then there's the culture. 
I think, though, if you go back over our Facebook feeds over the last five years, <laughs> particularly in Australia over the last three years or so, I, it's impossible to be in a church and not have this conversation, you know, like it is, it's been had, you know. Yeah. So I think, um, so on two levels, I'll just say this. I think the church at large, in terms of individual pastors, individual lay preachers, you know, people that teach Sabbath school, people that teach life groups, I think uh, by and large, they take their cues and uh, they mimic things that you will hear on YouTube, things that you will hear, the types of debates that we have on Facebook. That's, if you don't mind me saying, that's what I consider the quality <laughs> of <laughs> the conversations, you know, and that type of discourse as well. It's very binary. It's very like, mm. but there's this one way or the other, you've got to choose, you know, end days, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, so on one level, I think that that is, the way that we generally talk about it. Uh, at another level, I have to say my experience, church administrators in this part of the world have been amazing, do you know? Um, to me, like, um, grow, uh, when I was a pastor in the both of the conferences that I served at, my, um, and I think I just need to say this, is that my, to the people that I worked with and my elders, um, I had told them about my sexual struggles uh, before I became a pastor, I was quite naive and I used to tell everyone about my testimony. At that time, I thought being homosexual was a sin. And so my thing was like, well, this is my sin and you've got lots of sins yourself, you know, and Jesus is helping me just as he's helping you. So I would proudly actually just tell people that this is what I was struggling with and I would ask for their prayers. Mm. When I became a pastor, I didn't realise that that level of honesty um, was going to be, could be detrimental in terms of like your um, pastoral witness and the way that people, you know, held you with any sort of credibility. So it wasn't that I was ashamed of it. I was trying to hide it. I just knew that I, instead of me, I would just tell everyone, literally, if I would be like, oh, yeah, by the way, like I'm gay. <laughs> you know, I would just, <laughs> just tell them. And I thought that was very normal. And I think that's my personality too. But when I became a pastor, I was like, um, no, actually, people are going to use this against you and against the church. So I only tell people that I wanted to tell. So this is all to say this is that administrators had either, I'd either told directly or they had heard or they had assumed by some of the things that I had been asking for in terms of support. When the article came out, I'm happy to say that both my conference presidents that I served under reached out to me and they sent me the most infirming and encouraging messages. Now, obviously, mm -hmm. they weren't necessarily, um, you know, being short of affirming the position that I had taken, what they did say to me is that they wanted to reach out to me and then let me know that they care for me and they understand that this is a conversation that the church needs to have. Mm. Since then as well, I've also been in Australia and just want to do a shout out to a man named uh, Dr. John Wallace, who is the president of SDA Kinship, which is an organization, uh, a rainbow organization, or um, uh, sort of an alliance that sits outside the Adventist church all around the world and it allows uh, those of us who identify as rainbow but also as Adventists to have somewhere to go. So it's not an official arm of the church at all, but it's been doing lots of really good advocacy over many years. And in this part of the world, John Wallace does that. And when I was in Sydney, we met with um, conference administrators at that point uh, to talk about 
um, this issue. And I have to say, like, I think conference administrators and people are going to get very, I'm going to sound very elitist saying this now, but I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> I, I do feel like, I feel like if you have been theologically trained, if you take uh, the Bible seriously, if you take the interpretation seriously, then I think there's a bit more uh, humility, trepidation and um, thoughtfulness and consideration when we have these conversations. It doesn't mean that you have changed your mind on this position, but you absolutely know that you brace this, you just brace this conversation a little bit delicately. And I think those that don't have that um, just then go through the same old tropes of, it's a sin, God says it, I can show you these verses, blah, blah, blah. Mm. so we have a low level quality conversation. Um, mm. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. Well, I mean, I think I think as well part of the issue with that is yeah, you know, for example, like with, with politics, you know, I mean, we're in the middle of a very political moment um right now as we're recording this, but with politics, it's quite easy to find voices on both sides of a political, you know, of an idea or something going on. But I think yeah. quite often it can be quite difficult to find voices on both on like a range of the theological spectrum around an issue. I don't know why that is, but often, you know, when you go to YouTube videos or websites, it's all kind of the same, like that same idea of like God says that this is it, um, which isn't, it's not bad, but it's not the entire picture, I guess, is where absolutely. I'm at with it. Uh, so, I, yeah, absolutely. And Josh, I think... I think for people who call ourselves people of faith, hmm. which means that our fear threshold should be quite low. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we are dominated and ruled by fear. And um, and unfortunately, it just means that we can't actually have a conversation beyond the conversation that the church has been happening for decades now. It's the same conversation because we are too scared to engage it. The very thought of engaging it is heresy and a apostasy to some. And that's ridiculous because like, you know, Jesus is so big, the Bible can be, I mean, Jesus can be defended. Do you know what I mean? Like, right. uh, even the Bible in terms of even if you're conservative, like it should not rely on, um, of this, like, let's not talk about it. You know, we have to talk about it. I think the casualty of not talking about it is that we are a really poor witness to the world. And, uh, and people aren't going to take us seriously. And just to back that up with evidence, uh, McCrindle, who is a um, research uh, organisation in Australia, I think they're, they don't sell themselves as faith-based, but I think the directors are uh, people oh, okay. of faith. But um, they undertook, um, paid by the church, a research in Australia in 2017, and then it was repeated in New Zealand in 2018. And they went to identify what are the chop blockers that are stopping people from coming to church. And an interesting insight they got across both countries is that people who seriously consider joining a church seriously have thought about Jesus. So these are not just sort of like, you know, like people that might come to church, like these people have really thought seriously about joining the church and have thought about Jesus quite seriously. They said there were five blockers, the top two blockers of this, the first one was homosexuality. I think it was sitting around 41% in both countries. The next one was hell. And so this was so interesting to me last year when Israel Falau said that all homosexual people are going to hell. I was like, oh my God, <laughs> this is hilarious. Like, yeah, the that he's chosen are the top two blockers that are stopping people from actually yeah. coming to church. 
And so all I will say is this, in light of that, is the church willing to at least have a conversation? And if they're not, good luck. That 41% is going to continue to grow mm. and uh, to our detriment because we are too scared to engage this important conversation. Wow. Yeah. Well, well, that, that's like I'm. I'm always interested in hearing more stories. I guess is where where we're at. And I mean, this is really great. Like something like what Caleb Isley does with Humans of Adventism, because he just gets stories of all these different, you know, Adventists, and um, some of those are from really different perspectives than me. And I think that's really helpful. But you know, particularly like um, those of our. That like those in our Adventist community who've who've grown up um, with you know um, questions about their sexuality and different ways that they identify, I think often their voice is just not heard. And to be to be fair, I think like I haven't really set up a, a safe way to them for them to share, <laughs> so it's not like it would be easy to. Absolutely, um, absolutely. Yeah, um, I think. Can I just say? I think number one. I think to content creators, people who hold the pen in terms of having an editorial voice, such as that guy, such as you guys. Uh, Thank you for sharing your platform for people like us who don't get those opportunities because people immediately look down upon us or think that we're second-class citizens or or they'll say this thing that it's oxymoron, it's a paradox, there's no such thing as gay Christian. So we leave the conversation there and then our Mm -hmm. voices never get heard. So number one, kudos to you guys to actually allow these types of conversations to happen. Um, but the only other thing I would say, though, is I absolutely stories and narratives are important because it humanises the debate, but it's not enough because um, what always happens then is if straight people are holding the mic, they're always going to have the liberty and the power to say at the end. So, for instance, one of the reasons, I, despite knowing you guys well and respecting you guys and loving you guys, I was really worried to come on the podcast because I was worried that I was going to pour out my heart, say, you know, say a lots of information and at the end I was worried that one of the hosts just might say and I'm not saying you two specifically but just indicative of people who hold the mic that are straight and go wow that was really interesting well okay thanks for hearing that oh by the way I support blah 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 and then just say the absolute opposite <laughs> to everything that I said so right. it's oh. And I'm not trying to get you to agree with me. I'm just trying to say that if we're only hearing stories and we don't talk about some of the deep issues that I'm talking mm-hmm. about, these narratives are just sitting there and they're contestable. And not only are they contestable, they're just sitting there going, oh, well, good luck. I hope that God cures you. And I hope mm-hmm. that you the light so that you can be the full person. It sounds like you've got a great journey, not yet complete until you're straight. Yeah. I'm not saying that you guys would do that, but that's what I'm just <laughs> yeah. enough. Well, actually, let me, let me share this because... From myself, okay, um, I, I'm straight, I'm a pastor, but I, I have always, I wouldn't say always, for a lot of my adult life have not made my mind up on this issue. But I've always had the majority of the people in my, in my sphere of influence and who have influenced me have been people who are very... Um, have made their mind up or, or say that they've made their mind up that gay people are going to hell or, you know, that it's a sin or at the very least it's a sin and that they have, they're in trouble if, you know, we as Adventists don't have that whole going to hell sort of mentality, but it's kind of the same thing in a way. And so as somebody who has not personally made their mind up on this issue, I have often felt like, what's the point of me actually speaking up? Because... Mm. If I speak up and go, actually, 
I, I have questions about this. I know what answers I'm going to get because I've seen other people ask the same sort of questions and they always get shut down. Or as at the very least, as a, as a pastor now, to, to, to actually voice those concerns and to voice these sort of, should we be talking about this in a different light? The way that you're presenting, Andre, for my superiors, I've, I've always been afraid that my superiors will look down and go, well, hey, dude, you're a pastor. You can't actually be saying these things. You have to toe the party line. But then as you've already also sort of revealed, that party line is so unclear because it's not spoken of in in if we were in a very conservative Pentecostal church in the the deep south of the US it'd be clear but it's not clear for us here in New Zealand and Australia it's a behind the scenes conversation so as somebody who you know like I'm hearing what you're saying of like you know us giving you the voice but then kind of pulling it back at the last second from from my own personal perspective I'm so torn about the whole thing. Yeah, sure, absolutely. And listen, and and Jesse, can I just say, and Josh, that's why I feel privileged that you know you've allowed someone like me on here because uh, it was just when I was speaking to some Samoan pastors recently, Pastor Francis Moy and uh, Ray Moanga, and I was just knowing that. Uh, having that conversation with them, I know that that conversation is going to invite a whole bunch of criticism and questions about their ministerial integrity, yeah. you know, their theology, as I know it will for both of you as well. Uh, but can I just say, like, um, number one, it's a conversation, you know. Mm. We need to, the conversation needs to be informed. And um, one of the things I'll just say is I work in the race relations space here in New Zealand, and um, and one of the things that we always say when speaking about racism is to pass the mic. In fact, on a whole bunch of issues, pass the mic. So, so, so when we're speaking about homosexuality, when we're speaking about the rainbow, it's just so weird to me that most of the discussions that the church has are between a whole bunch of straight people. Yeah. No yeah. passing of the mic yeah. to people that live it and yeah. know it probably much better than they ever will. It's the same having a whole bunch of men talking about what's right for women. Mm. Half the mic, bro, <laughs> you know? Mm. So it's not even about you having a definitive position at this point. It's actually having the humility to pass the mic, you know, and actually engage a conversation whereby people can make up their own minds. I think this is the interesting quandary that I think we pastors, particularly when we get paid by the domination, we have this pressure that's actually not right, and that is to try to get everyone to toe the party line. And I think we need to facilitate, provide tools for spiritual maturity, for people to have their own relationship with God, to interpret the Bible as God is leading them, and then, you know, give them the fundamentals and then go from there. But we feel this immense pressure to have people believe what I believe, say what I say, and in mm. fact, in Adventism, we do this really weird thing. We actually say publicly say what I say, but you can believe whatever you want in private. Just don't say it publicly. Oh, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, and like that is just weird, do you know? Like yeah. Uh, yeah. that's very normal. Like I, I remember when my sister was first becoming a Christian, and at that time, you know, she went to a Pentecostal church, and then um, then she went to an Adventist church, and she rang me. She goes, "I'm just I'm a little bit confused." I go, well, and she's straight up. She's a journalist, a former journalist, so they just say how it is. She goes, at church, they say one thing. And then when we go to people's house afterward, they say something else. She wasn't talking about backstabbing, but she was talking about theological positions, yeah. you know. Wow. Just like, 
uh, come on, guys, we just need that honesty, you know. Mm. Yeah, which is when you think about the Adventist history and our trajectory, we 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 we're sort of like an like oh, I don't know how to we were sort of anti that you know where we started. We started out with saying no, this is how it actually is, and we should we should wrestle with. We should wrestle with the things we find in scripture and try and work it out. That's the movement. That's where we come from. That's our roots and that's who we should still be. But then we've sort of, I don't know, moved, maybe moved into a place of, oh, now, you know, we've got the truth and we have to hold on to it. Like, mm. whereas, and, you know, I'm, I'm definitely one who believes in truth and seeking truth, obviously. And, but it's, it's more like this idea of, well, to continue where we've come from, I think we need to be okay with wrestling and asking questions and, Having like you know, to some people, this conversation will be uncomfortable. But I think we mm. need to be, we need to Super. like get ourselves into some uncomfortable conversations about <sighs> discipleship and about interpretation of scripture and all that kind of thing. And yeah, I think it's absolutely. healthy for us. It's, and can I just say the flip side is this: is that actually you're in a very privileged position when you can actually debate if someone belongs, if mm. someone is Christian, if the Bible endorses someone's life or lifestyle, that's a position of privilege. So can we, number one, get over that position of privilege because a lot of people are suffering uh, because of this issue. Do you know, I don't mm-hmm. know if you saw last week, Sydney Morning Herald, former Wallaby, um, Dan Palmer, this most beautiful essay, coming out essay, but basically all the way through, and it just resonates with so many gay people's life stories, is that he just wanted to take his life from the moment, you know, he kind right. of... It's just so much stigma there. Um, one of my friends recently published an article sharing their story, and then someone reached out to um, him and actually said that uh, former spouse uh, had suicided and um, had children and all that, and later found out that suicided because of this issue that they were gay. And then, and that's just very common, you know. Yeah, yeah. And then the irony was that that person said, my gosh, we would have accepted him. Everyone would have accepted him, the kids, yeah. parents, me, you know. So I think, um, so instead of us debating what is theological, can we actually, can we look and see where people are hurting because actually of beliefs that the church continues to promote, ideology that we continue to say from pulpits, from Facebook, that are actually negatively impacting a lot of people in the world. Like, let's have that discussion. Uh, How can our theology be so harmful to people? Like, can we have that discussion? And, you know, let's go from there. I think a lot of people just don't get, like, for for, for the vast majority of people on the other side of the fence, it's it's spiritual, theological, academic, but they just don't get that how deeply personal it is for so absolutely. many people. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that's why we need to be looking at this from a wider lens than just the mm. theological uh, lens. We need to be looking at it from a ethical uh, perspective, also from a psychosocial perspective as well. Mm. Um, ethical in terms of is it okay that many people feel like they, they, they won't belong in the church because of their sexuality and they will just volunteer to leave? Mm. Is it okay that some people actually want to take their lives because of what they know these Bible verses say about them? Is it okay that, you know, some people feel like they need to be in the closet for the rest of their lives because of these verses? Like, let's have those types of conversations, you know? Mm. Yeah. yeah. If I was to if I was to push back on that a little bit, I guess yeah. I'm thinking about in my mind your theological 
perspective. Well, this is just in, in my worldview. Yeah, your yeah. theological perspective is always sort of number one, and that informs your other views. Yeah. yeah um, so, would you say yeah. that would still be true in how, like, maybe your theological should affect yeah. your ethical no. and your psychosocial, and how that would no, come I would into play? Say, I would say, Josh, that that is a romantic notion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that is a ideological theoretical concept that actually that that if we started to test it we would see that um, we are constantly adapting uh, scripture to suit our needs you know so for instance okay. uh, yeah yeah so for instance I mean there's just so many things number one uh, say this often but you can use the Bible to support a whole bunch of practice that isn't good mm. such as genocide incest violence against women homosexuality um, abuse of children, mm. um, sexual abuse of family members, uh, the list goes on. Yeah. But what happens, um, divorce, mm. you know, because other people need to stay in marriages. Uh, the truth is, and the church just it cracks me up, where they've been, for instance, like some people will comment under something that I've done and I was saying, the Bible never changes. It's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And I was going, uh, you know, the Bible was used to establish groups like the KKK, you know, in America where there was segregation <laughs> yeah. in South Africa, where there was segregation. The Bible was fundamentally underpinning mm. those, uh, those constructs and our belief and our practice. At some point, the penny dropped for everyone and said, oh, my gosh, this is not a right way to apply scripture. Mm. It's in scripture, but we've had to change our interpretation of scripture or the way that we apply it in light of the fact that it's hurting many people. Mm. You know, when we even in this generation, there's a number of women who have been beaten in homes and yet the advice they will get from pastors using the Bible, not even pastors, lay leaders is, hey, sort it out, honour your husband, pray, what have you done wrong, Do you know? Yeah. Then the conversation has evolved since then and now we've got really great systems in place that say, look, if someone's abusing you, ring this number, blah, 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 yeah. get this help, call the police. That is recent, you know, mm. and it's recent because for so long the Bible was being used against these marginalised groups. So, Josh, I would say it's a romantic notion. I think <laughs> notion that, by the way, the people that say that are the people that have the, the most to benefit from it. Yeah. Right. People, yeah. Rainbow people aren't saying that. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, and I, yeah. I, I do think it's interesting if we are going to hold rainbow people to account to the very fundamentalist traditional view of um, sexuality as presented in scripture, then we definitely should be keeping divorced people to the same um, standard. We should be keeping, you know, yeah, so but, many. And, and then, but Josh, when, I mean, sorry, Jesse, when you say that, it just... It, irks me because I'm like, no, we can't because there's some people who are stuck in marriages that are just terrible yeah. for them. No, 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 I know, I know. You're, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And, and so, I'm not saying yeah, we should, yeah. but I'm saying that if we want to do one thing, no, no, then we Josh, should be and, doing and, the and other. Jesse, and, I, and I'm agreeing with you. Yeah. What I'm saying though is the very, even though you're using it as an example, you know, and the fact that we have evolved and we have changed, it just, my very sensibility just mm. gets like, no, we can't because. But I think a lot of people would, would have that as well. That's the exactly. exact reaction. Absolutely. But, but we do not do that, yes. as you've just pointed out, for this rainbow community yeah. at all. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Can I ask you, um, we're coming yeah. to an end here, but let's let's say that you are, um, let's, let's talk about the pastors 
in the in the mm. room, um, those ones who haven't turned off the the podcast already, <laughs> <laughs> and they're they're thinking, okay, cool, I I I'm not a hundred percent there, or maybe I'm a hundred percent there, but I just don't know how to have that conversation, or if you know, look, I've as a pastor, young people, teenagers coming up to me asking me these sorts of questions so much, and yeah. I just feel disempowered from being able to actually have that healthy conversation. What would you say to the pastors, to the church leaders, to the people in positions of influence who can speak and influence um, the lives of other people? What are some of the more helpful conversations that you yeah. wish that we were having right now in the church? Yeah, number one, I would say that uh, pastors don't operate in a vacuum. Absolutely, the system needs to be having this conversation. Pastors' hands are very much tied um, in terms of the advice that they think they could give out, the spiritual advice. And that's a real problem in light of the fact that young people may want to take their lives or may want to leave the church, and yet we don't even know if it's safe for us to say that you are acceptable to God and that you are loved, and even for your sexuality. Like for many people, they are so scared to say that because in their minds, they think, therefore, that that will endorse sin and homosexuality and lead a person down this course that is going to lead them to hell or somewhere bad. So, I mean, the pressure is immense, and this is what I'm saying, that the church actually needs to have this because um, otherwise pastors are feel, you know, like their pay is tied to it, their reputation, criticism, blah, blah, blah. Um, so, first of all, I just think it's actually quite sad that um, pastors uh, are perplexed that they don't, that we can't just issue the normal advice we would get to everyone else. <laughs> just God loves you deeply, you know, let him work it out like he just loves you. The fact that we, you know, have a pastoral license, some people are ordained, and we can't even say that, like, come on, guys, <laughs> you know, like... <laughs> what is your witness to this person like this person who's reaching out for some jesus and for some grace and for some love and for someone to hear them and we can't even do that because of this theological belief here in other words we have prioritized a fundamental belief on paper over the person who was in front of me um that is an issue that the church needs to grapple with and i'll just say this let your sensibility the holy spirit lead you at that time listen and 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 ask more questions than you are giving answers at that time um and then also the other important thing is that you need to apply the science here the science is is that that you cannot turn straight from praying there are people that may choose to do it in their lives as a choice for them but there's no science that supports that and so I think we need to have, it's the same as when uh, hopefully a pastor's asked this question by someone that is experiencing mental health distress. And it's like, should I take my meds? I would hope that every pastor would apply a scientific lens to that mm. conversation. Right. Yeah. The same way where someone is approached like I'm being beaten by my spouse, that I hope we would apply the law and protection for, you know, child mm. or mother. And those lens are like, it's just a no brainer. Like a faith can coexist with um, with science and with with things that are important for people, for the psycho- psychosocial stuff. Mm. Yeah. Um, there's just one thing I do want to say before I go in terms of homosexuality that might be enough for, for pastors as they, they broach this issue, but but cover it later, if there is a later. <laughs> <laughs> Part two. 
No, no, no. It'll cover it later in this comment. Sorry. Okay. You oh. want to have me on again. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you, you guys might actually get your uh, sponsorship from Evandale removed after this conversation. <laughs> okay. uh, go, man. What's up? What's up? What's up? <laughs> oh, sorry. Yo, uh, sorry. Were you going gonna to say there's one more thing? Yeah, there's one more thing. I think... Uh, going back to this idea of how we have actually adapted and reinterpreted scripture. So for instance, you know, and this is why there's a couple of things that I just want to say. Number one, I think churches absolutely need to be honest about their policies. Um, And the reason I say this is because um, going back to, I think what you were saying, Jesse or Josh, Mm. is actually there is no ambivalence in terms of the church policy. The church is very clear in this part of the world that homosexuality is not of the Bible. However, our practice on the ground and the way we talk about it is a different, that's different. I think mm-hmm. that's where that sort of confusion is. But, but the policy position is strong and it's that they, they not, you know, they can't take positions, blah, 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 marriage is between a man and a woman. So I would just say this, that I think we need to be clear about our policy positions because uh, when we are, um, I think we will see um, the types of things that we saw in America where... Uh, where black people weren't allowed on churches and it said whites only, no blacks allowed. I mean, when we see those signs, we it's absurd that a church could actually have that. And I think this is what, if we have an honest conversation, we can start it at that point, that this group is being excluded. And if we just see it in black and white like that, I think we start to see the ugliness that a group has been excluded. Let's start the conversation from there. Because as long as we don't admit where we're at, we have a conversation that is very safe and very nice and very much privileges those who are not rainbow. Mm. That's the first thing I would say. Um, The second thing, and then another big last important thing that I would say is this, is that if the church wants to engage or think about a shift in support of people who are homosexual, gay, rainbow and can be Christians, I think it needs to look at uh, the way that we interpret a Bible from um, the the patriarchy, how the Bible actually destroys the patriarchy, in my opinion, you know. So, for instance, like when you look at someone like Jesus, who um, by his example, the hermeneutic that he is modelling, when he never once says, Jesus never once says, women's rights, women are equal to men. He doesn't say that at all, you know. Mm. His example every time shows that he is. And if you can just let me give you some examples. So the woman um, who is hemorrhaging, you know, we know, uh, you know, for 12 years who was bleeding, that that status um, puts her now as an outsider, as unclean outside of the church. Jesus, however, allows this woman to touch her, so to get close to her. And then, you know, he has this whole thing like, who touched me? And he goes, oh, it's you. And, you know, now you're healed. Uh, so he never says, like, you know, women can now, but but he gives in that example um, this very fact of allowing this woman to come close. And this old rule of women being out and also those who are bleeding out, we now imagine, actually, Jesus has given this example in terms of how to deal with this, even though a scripture supports another way to treat her. You know, you think about Mary in the position of a disciple before um, Jesus in Martha and Mary's house. Um, you know, she's sitting there and then he says to Martha, come 
come and learn that you've missed the most important thing. In other words, he's sitting there as a disciple, as a rabbi disciple. Like he doesn't actually say women now can be disciples, but we just see all these little clues. Mm-hmm. All these men, his like 12 disciples, who, by the way, like when he gets crucified, all of them scatter despite being with him for three years. There's only one and two women at the cross. There's two women at the cross. Mm. It's the first person that sees him, you know, when he raises from the dead. It's a woman. Who is the first evangelist? John 4. It's the Samaritan woman, you know. Verse 4, verse four um, John 4, 29 and 39. Come and meet a man who everything I, who said everything I ever did. And then Jesus stayed in the town two days longer. None of the men got that, you know. So yeah. I say, like, all of these clues that show to us the hermeneutic of Jesus that women now have a different place, you know. And hopefully you are now, despite all the scripture that has excluded them, I'm now showing you, by the way, remember John 1, you know, and the word became flesh and the word came among us. In other words, like I'm embodying how the scripture was always meant to be applied. The fact that Jesus didn't say anything about homosexuality is number one, gives us a clue. And if we want to see the way that he's treated women, other marginalized groups that the people were racist against at the time, if we see the way that he's so inclusive towards them, I would just say the next next cab off the rank is, guess what, the rainbow community. You know, we've done it before. We need to do it again. Yeah. Hmm. That's good. That's yeah, good. wow. That's such good insights, honestly. That's <laughs> really cool. Mm. And I think, yeah, as well, I mean, remembering that Jesus as well, he didn't exist in a vacuum. Like his ministry <laughs> was in that culture at that time. And I think he mm. was... Absolutely. Pushing the boundary at that time in the way that was appropriate at that time. Yeah. yeah. And Well, actually, it wasn't appropriate though, Josh, was it? Well, yeah, I meant like... In a deeply yeah. orthodox... I mean, they didn't, they didn't yeah. have like protests or that kind of thing, but oh, that's yeah, yeah, because there sure, wasn't a democracy, sure. you know, back then. You, right. couldn't, you couldn't have that's protests, right. weren't a thing. That's what I, I, that's what I meant, like in Sorry, the context, yes, yes. appropriate that's to that context, right. but obviously, mm. obviously pushing it further than what that context had before. Absolutely, um, yeah. One of the things that I've really... Um, appreciate it now that I've come to see it is this whole idea of you know people often go um, when they attack the Bible it's it's always the same sorts of things you know the genocide slavery um, or the violence all that sort of stuff and and one of the things that I have come to realize through um, places like the Bible Project and really good scholars that have written good books is not necessarily what does the Bible endorse straight up like thus saith the lord now and forever amen but what is the bible's storyline leading us towards and amen. what is yeah you know and that's i think totally in line with what you're saying about jesus Absolutely. Absolutely. right jesus doesn't speak about the rainbow community but what that's is right. his witness what is his Absolutely. ministry what is the trajectory yeah. that Absolutely. is leading us towards Absolutely. That's so true. I mean, like, even the Bible is an ancient document. The fact that we have stories of women, books named after women, and then women telling the stories, and in all of these places where Jesus is constantly elevating women above yeah. men and the societal structure that disallows that, those are all clues for us in terms of the bigger narrative of the Bible. And, and I was listening to your podcast by of John Chazapet, Right? And he was actually saying in the writings of Alan White, we've actually lost the main essence of the story. We are focusing, and, and, and by the way, in terms of homosexuality, the verses that, are, that we call the clobber text that are used against are six verses, people, yeah. six of them. You would think by the energy that the church worldwide has put into this issue that there were six books you know, <laughs> written on this issue. Yeah. And by the way, those are six verses that are highly 
contested, yeah. you know, like as well, contextually, historically, in terms of like what this, these verses could mean. Um, one last point I just want to say is this, is that um, we must not weaponize the Bible. We must not use the Bible to say, to ignore the meta-narrative and the love of Jesus, the very essence, you know, Jesus come to life, the word, you know, the word, the Bible embodied uh, and expressed. We cannot ignore that big thing in terms of um, the word come to life and in light of using the Bible against people. So can I just say this, that the Adventist church alongside the Christian church at large, we have missed the, we've missed the, the, this point so many times, like if we look in history and we see, for instance, like um, the complicitness of the church and the silence of the church in Nazi Germany, where Adventists like jumped mm. right into whatever Hitler was doing. Yep. We see the same thing in Rwanda against the two factions there. And Adventists at that time, uh, you know, that terrible situation where the conference president, you know, uh, someone wrote to him and said, you know, thousands of people are going to die, just like Esther, will you save us? And he said, yes, come to the conference compound. And instead, he invited them there, and then he killed them there. Apartheid South Africa, again, the Adventist Church, we have never taken a leadership role, you know. It, it requires us to be called out and the church to be called out before we respond. And that's just not the way Jesus was. He literally hit the ground running, looking for marginalised groups and how to free them. You know, I, you know, I... The spirit of the Lord is upon me to set the captives free, to set the blind free. That was his frame of reference everywhere he went. And somewhere along the line, we have like gone, no, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to use this against you. Bang, 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 bang. <laughs> I'm keeping it well. It's just the complete opposite of what he has done. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah, that's, yeah, it's tragic when you, like when I first learned yeah. those stories, yeah. I was just like so let down by our history but I guess in thinking about that what would be what what would be sort of our next steps into I mean I know we've sort of touched on this already but like it yeah. not ending up like that again I think if Jesus was here he would look for the groups that have been most marginalized and he would speak up for them and that's exactly what he did you know when you saw, like, you know, the, the time that he came into, highly racist, highly xenophobic, highly patriarchal, highly, like, we are the bee's knees and everyone else sucks. And then Jesus would go out of his way to include those people. The fact that, I mean, he is so distant, he's so shady. And so when he says things like, I've never seen faith this great in all of Israel, when he's speaking to like a Gentile, you know, yeah. Roman centurion, yeah. you know, he's basically saying, out of all of the people that are apparently meant to have received and embodied God's word, none of them compared to you, Mr. <laughs> Outsider. You know, that's yeah. the type of thing that he did. We have lost that, that we've lost that. You know, we we feel scared to, you know, James 1, 17, every good and perfect gift from, comes from God above. Mm -hmm. Unless not from our tribe, we are too scared to see the good in anyone else. Because for us, it's like, it has to come with a complete package, you know. Yeah. You have to be an Adventist and you have to be doing all these things. And if you don't tick those boxes, then, um, then we're too scared to endorse anything nice about you. And I think, man, what a disservice we have done. God is everywhere and in everyone, you know. Mm. And, um, and we've, you know, we've made him so small. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. That's cool. Yeah. 
Uh, that's it's a lot to it's a lot to process, Andre. But um, I just want to thank you. Are, you. I need to go to counselling supervision. <laughs> <laughs> I have to reevaluate my whole life. <laughs> it's so forlorn, I know. It is, but it's good, and it's good that we were able to have this conversation. And I I genuinely hope that this is the beginning of um, churches and pastors and young people having healthy uh, conversations about this, which is it. it it's such a huge thing and I think if we're able to get this right, as you've said, you know, we can really, really be an incredible witness to um, those people who are genuinely um, interested in faith, you know. Mm. If, if, if Adventism can get this conversation on, on uh, sexual identity right, I mean, hell and homosexuality, man, we would have it absolutely, you know, we would have the best position to be able to share Absolutely. Jesus with, with yeah, people. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I just want to ask, before we close off, okay, I, I want to uh, just spend some time talking directly to um, young people, old people, middle-aged people, everywhere in between people. Maybe they're Christian, uh, struggling with their sexuality. Um, what would you point them towards? Who would you point them towards? Let's say, you know, Australia and New Zealand. You already talked about kinship, um, in the Adventist context, uh, what advice would you give that young person, old person, middle of the road person um, who is struggling with that, uh, with mm. that, that, that whole thing? I'd say, I mean, the world is so awesome these days of social media that, um, you know, people that share their stories online, that you can often find them online and connect with them or find more of their stories. So, you know, so do some research, like find out, you know, learn people's uh, stories and learn their narratives. Um, if you're looking for reading, some people that have really influenced me is David Gushy uh, from America, Matthew Vines um, in Australia, Anthony Ben Brown. Um, there's just, there's a lot of resources online. There's a really cool uh, network in um, Melbourne uh, called Brave and um, they're interdenominational. There's a, there's a lot of places you can go to for help. Um, I would just say, hang, there's a lot of good Facebook groups as well that people could join up to. Um, God, just pray, God will lead you. He, he just loves you so much. You know, he's got, he will lead you into, uh, into some support, you know, and you don't have to do life by yourself. God is with you. And, and there's other people that have been through what you've been through. And, um, and you don't have to do it tough and you don't have to do it alone. And you're not a yucky person. You're really, really special to God. He just loves you. Like he died for you and just adores you. Amen. So good. That's such a great place to finish. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much for your time, Andre. Um, yeah, I've got so much I need to mull. I actually can't wait till we air this because I want to listen to this again and just have so much to think about and pray about. And um, I know this conversation will be really helpful for so many people. So. Yeah. Hey guys, um, a minute. You have a like fact checker running alongside. <laughs> false, false, false. Fake news. No jokes. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, I wish we could have laughed more. So intense. I'm so yeah, sorry. I anyway. know it's so unlike us when we get together and chat. It's I usually know, just killing right? well, each other laughing. But it's... I don't think I've ever gone so long in such a serious conversation with you, Andre. So I loved it. it I know. Great. You're like, this is not what we signed up for. Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, no, that's good. Oh, that's okay. good. That was really good. Awesome. Um, 
Yeah, hey, so thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Um, you know, I know there were some probably really different ideas than what you've heard, and that's okay. Like, we'd love to hear your thoughts on it too. So um, reach out to us. The best place to find all things Burn the Haystack is burnthehaystack.org. That's where we need you to go. Yeah. Uh, and like and subscribe, whether you're watching this on YouTube or on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, or anywhere else there are so many podcatching apps out there uh if you'd really really uh like to help us out uh help andre out uh you know just completely uh be an awesome person leave us a rating or review on whatever podcatching app that you're on uh and we'll just love you forever just like god loves you Amen. I thought you were going to go go to my Patreon and donate. <laughs> yeah. That's coming. I thought that's what you were going to do. Anyway. <laughs> well, you can buy a t-shirt. That's, yeah, anyway. That's true. true. You can buy the merch. Awesome. Buy the merch. <laughs> well, that is Josh, Jesse, and Andre out. <laughs> <laughs>